What's up, everybody? I'm Mike Wilson with Any Hour Services, and we're proud to help bring you this podcast. If you ever need a resource for information about your home's electrical, plumbing, heating, or air conditioning system, you can find Any Hour Services on Facebook, YouTube, or online at anyhourservices.com. I'm Scott Trout, CEO of the domestic litigation firm Cordell & Cordell. We help men deal with the life changes triggered by divorce, such as child custody and property division, among many others. But life changes also occur after divorce. These changes can make parts of your existing court order irrelevant or harder to follow. If you feel a modification to your court orders might be necessary, talk to us at Cordell & Cordell. We're a partner men can count on. Contact CordellCordell.com, 1065 East Hillsdale Boulevard, Suite 310, Foster City, California, 94404. Welcome to Ideation Collective. I'm Jess Larson. Today on the show, we've got Brent Kamelich. Drama, that's what the media feeds off of. So I'm like, all right, I'll feed off of that too, but let's let's put a little twist in there and um, you know make people smile, not people not make people scared of of living in this world, you know, because there's a lot of good stuff happening. This is another episode of our Innovation and Leadership series where we interview rocket scientists, pro athletes, CEOs, Hollywood filmmakers, and a wide variety of other high achievers. Now, before we jump into the show, I want to cover a couple of things. First, I'm really excited to announce our first sponsor. Today's show is brought to you by Intel. On Thursday, Cinco de Mayo, please check out World Password Day that Intel is helping to promote. The website is passwordday.org. Second, please consider getting involved with a charity our founders started called Child Rescue that's helping build an aftercare orphanage for child sex trafficking survivors in Cusco, Peru. There's details in the Child Rescue tab from the menu on our site. And last, we have a new free program coming out that teaches entrepreneurs the techniques and the legal checklists that our instructors have used to raise tens of millions of dollars for other companies. If you want early access to the free program, please sign up for free at iCollective.co slash fundraise. Again, iCollective.co slash fundraise. So with that out of the way, let's get to the interview. Brent, thanks for being on the show. Thanks for having me, Jess. So we're going to talk about some fun things. Uh... Working with the NFL, doing stuff in the entertainment industry with big music stars, but uh, let's start off with Dude Be Nice. What's Dude Be Nice? Yeah, so Dude Be Nice is an apparel company based out of the Southern California area, and the idea was, what if we created a brand that inspired people to treat others better, but was actually cool enough to wear? We didn't want to be anti-something or against something. We want to be for something, and really, you know, the idea is, let's try to make kindness cool, and it's it's been uh, an incredible run so far. Well, you know, when our friend Josh Soloway suggested you for the show and he, he showed me what you guys were doing, I, I thought it was exciting because there's a lot of people with great ideas, but so many people, like they have something awesome, but they can't figure out the other half of the formula of getting people attracted to want it from them. Right. And uh, I feel like you're really setting a trend of, of not only making the world better, but um, the way from a, no matter what the business is, creating the kind of experience that, that becomes a magnet and creates kind of a, like an emotional tie for, for kids that are part of this program to have, uh, maybe more of a lasting connection to your brand. And obviously with your videos, you know, over 3 million views for this kind of stuff, uh, that's something that's working, but can you talk about this dude be nice week platform you've got going? Yeah, so there's kind of two components of it. We, to your point, we knew that if we were going to be successful, and and when I say we knew, we I didn't figure this out for a while after I started. I thought originally, dude, be nice. I'll buy itself. Like it has a cool draw, and it does. Like if you're wearing a shirt or some of our apparel, like people always respond, and that's a pretty powerful thing. But we knew if if we were going to be successful, we had to make and help people feel what this dude be nice is all about, and so. 
we started something called first before the dude be nice week, the dude be nice project, which is basically, um, we, we started reaching out to kids and asking them, Hey, is there anybody in your community that's, that's incredible, but maybe underappreciated. And, um, you know, very quickly people started telling us about, you know, their custodian that's amazing or a teacher they've had that has impacted their lives or a person that worked at a, works at a, a restaurant that they always go into. And, um, they start telling us about these people and we decided what if we go and throw these like insane surprise parties for these people, kind of like a positive punked kind of thing and, and make their day. And, uh, you know, we'll talk about this in a little bit, I'm sure, but I have a background in storytelling and journalism. And, uh, I was like, let's tell some good stories and create kind of a fun platform and, and film these experiences where we surprise these people. And that was really the genesis of, of really giving our brand, um, some life and some, some ethos essentially. Yeah. And, uh, you can just see when you watch the videos and we'll post some videos, um, on Brent's page on ideation collective. Um, you guys can come watch these videos, but, uh, and we'll link to your YouTube channel. But, um, there's like, one of the things that I thought was really great about what you're doing was letting the kids decide, like it wasn't adults showing up and telling them what they're going to do to be nice. Like, this idea of like letting them decide and letting it be their project. No wonder you're getting so much buy-in. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, that, that was really the goal from the beginning. Like this is about the kids. It's not about me. Yes. I'm a part of those and help kind of guide and provide guardrails, but really it's the kids like that, that, that choose the people help plan it, get amped about it. And I think it's a testament to really what this generation is about. I think they get a bad rap and I tell them all the time, like you, you guys know what people say about you that are my age and older. They think that, you know, you're selfish and all you care about is the person you are on social media, um, and not in real life. But I, I just think that's wrong. I, I knew from working with youth for many years and other capacities that they like want to be a part of positive stuff. And this is something that helps them really shine in that space. So, um, that's what, to your point, that's what makes it special. It's the kids that, that get behind it and, you know, means a lot for the people that they, that they show gratitude towards. And by the way, gratitude and all the things that we're doing, it's not just like some, some like, Oh, that's a nice thing. Like there's study after study shows that like being appreciative, showing gratitude and these type and feeling what that feels like is really a key to like a more happy and joyful life across the board. It is interesting, you know, when you do service for someone else, like it's fun to be appreciated, but it's yeah. interesting what a high you get from appreciating someone else. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, and, and that's kind of, I kind of joke with kids. It's like, instead of getting addicted to drugs, like get, get high on a helper's high. Like, and that's an actual like scientific term now. I think some researcher out of Stanford, you know, said that, when your your brain chemistry truly changes when you help other people and do these nice things. And that's something like that feels pretty darn good. I think we've all had those experiences. And so if you kind of continue to do that, um, you know, it, it truly makes you a happier person. And as cliche as it sounds, the world a little bit of a better place. That's awesome though. Um, well, let's talk about some of the things that helped you um, shape you know, the way that you've, you've built this organization. And, um, what I thought was interesting when we were talking before is how many people just assume you're a nonprofit, right. where I love that you're a for-profit company that's doing good in the world. Yeah, absolutely. I, uh, from, there was never a question in my mind that we would, would be a nonprofit. I've, I've always wanted to be a for-profit. And part of the reason for that, it's like, I, I think there's this, it's, it's, it's this assumption that if you want to do good in the world or be, 
do something positive. It's like you got to work for a nonprofit or you, you're like an educator in some capacity. And I've and I'm basically like, why can't we create a business that inspires you know people to to do good things for their communities and still make a decent living? And we can treat people well along the way that are, that work for us and that are outside of our organization. And so that was that's always been kind of my my goal. We've never taken any handouts or donations. It's we survive through our apparel sales and that's what allows us to create these other kind of magical, powerful moments. That's awesome. Um, I, uh, I feel like there's such a opportunity. Like when you think about becoming a business scientist where, you know, we give a, we give this best guess, we go out, we test it and measure it, whether it works or not. Um, you know, I have a nonprofit we've been running for five, six years now. And, uh, (laughs) <laughs> I, I love for-profit. The feedback loop is so good. Yeah. Um, it feels like when people can pay the rent, it's so much easier to keep spending time making the world better. Yep. Yeah, absolutely. And I think a lot of people, um, and this isn't a knock on nonprofits, obviously at all, cause I absolutely am passionate about a lot of different nonprofits, but, um, but I think a lot of people also get into the nonprofit world. I'm curious your opinion on this. And they think like, they have an expectation to kind of these big grandiose expectations of changing the world or, or in some capacity. And, and sometimes that's not the case, you know, there's, it's still run like a business in a lot of ways. And, you know, I'd rather just be transparent. We're a business. We're going to do our best to change the world at the same time and, you know, keep the expectations a little lower. So when, when you, you're more surprised and delight, delighted along the journey. <laughs> Yeah, I feel like I can rip on nonprofits since I've been doing it for these years. <laughs> and uh, there, there's a ton of problems and, and there's a ton of things um, in the in the public perception also that if you're doing something good, that you shouldn't you shouldn't make a good wage. I mean, there's so much ripping on nonprofits for right. paying competitive salaries. Right. And so if you want to keep a good public opinion, you can't afford the kind of talent that would actually get the world changed the way you want most times. Right. right. And uh, or you'll get you'll get uh, so much negative publicity where I feel like these hybrid businesses where it's, no, we are for profit. We're here to make money. We just happen to be making the world better. Yeah. Uh, it kind of, they don't get that venom from society. And uh, anyways, it feels more scalable. Um, so, uh, but let's talk about, you know, you're interested in journalism. You, you went to CBS um, and but you ended up going from the journalism to the marketing side. Talk about uh, your your move from CBS doing the eleven o'clock news over to uh, E2K. Yeah, so I uh, I was in journalism. I, that was kind of my my dream job. Got a job when I was in in college, um, producing the eleven o'clock news for a CBS affiliate, and and um, you know very pretty quickly realized, wow, maybe this isn't what I thought it would be for a lot of different reasons, but mostly. I was telling, you know, every day it was about tragic tragedy. That's what we'd get excited about. We'd like, I feel like we, if someone died or there was some horrible, um, international event, we'd like high five because that gave us something to talk about. And I was like, this is, this is whack. This isn't not who I am and not what I want to be about. And, um, so actually before, before I went into the E2K, I actually went and worked for a summer camp and, uh, at the, so I was like, I need to do something positive, very different from what I was doing. So I went and ran a summer camp. I was the, basically the the guy that made sure kids came and had a good time. I taught kids how to wakeboard. We'd take them skateboarding, um, backpacking, taught them leadership skills. And um, when you're working for a summer camp, part of the year, 
you are obviously not, you don't have any kids and your goal is to do marketing and get people excited about coming to summer camp. And that's kind of where I, I fell in love with this idea of like influencing people to, to purchase or be a part of your product or service, um, you know, through different mediums, whether it be video speaking events. And so I, I really enjoyed that. I, I enjoyed creating experiences for people that, that really moved them. And that's kind of what marketing has been for me. And so, um, eventually had to leave the summer camp because you make uh, pretty much a, a non-living wage. It was really fun, but calling your parents for rent every month was, uh, started to get pretty old. And, uh, eventually went and, um, through a series of different connections and, and opportunities, took a job with a company called E2K that uh, was responsible for the game day entertainment for the San Francisco 49ers. They're basically a marketing agency that does more of the experiential marketing at an event. And, um, and so that was, that was a, I mean, a pretty natural transition from actually working at a camp where you're just being creative and, and creating these events and experiences for young people. Now we were just doing it on a larger, on a larger scale. And I was a part of the team that got to do that from the, you know, the, the, the halftime entertainment, uh, working with the cheerleaders, which obviously was pretty cool. And, uh, a couple of other things, <laughs> uh, it, it was a, it was a neat experience and a pretty natural, um, progression into, into the marketing space. What do you feel like, um, what do you feel like you learned by operating at that level where you're like literally on a world stage, you know, such a big name team like that. What do you feel like you learned doing that level of marketing that you couldn't have learned anywhere else? I think in, on that stage specifically, and I saw it go bad for some other people, it's just how, how much visibility, what you're creating, um, has and how impactful it can be, you know, from the, the type of music you play to, you know, and, and who's going to be offended or how that's going to move certain people. Like, I think that was one of the biggest keys I learned is, you know, just assume that the, the things you're putting out in the world are being seen by a lot of different people. And sure enough, they were and that, you know, bit some people that I even worked with at the time in the butt because they just kind of didn't think like that. And fortunately, you know, I was able to learn from their mistakes. Kind of noticing those second and third order effects of what else could happen besides the uh, the upfront. Yep, yep, absolutely, yep, exactly. Um, so eventually, um, you think about um, the translating those experiences, those type of events. How has that impact the the dude be nice project, or what lessons do you feel like you brought to to what you're doing now? You know, I think working in that environment where you're in a stadium and you know this team is responsible for the fireworks and all the pomp and circumstance that happens during, during a game. That's not the actual game. You know, I, I, the feeling you get, like when you are responsible for evoking those emotions from fireworks or, you know, the, if you've ever been to a game and, and a jet flies overhead at the end of the national anthem like that, that, that creates a pretty amazing feeling inside of anybody who's there from a pride standpoint, excitement. And, um, and I and I I love being responsible for making people feel that way to create these kind of magical moments. And so there's no doubt that me understanding how much I enjoyed that has translated into the Dude Be Nice projects, where we basically throw these these events not on a lar- as large a scale as that, but where we're we're making someone that, but we're doing it for someone. Like I hope that this gets to a point where it's as big as you know, almost like a game where we can have jets flying overhead and 
parachuters jumping in, fireworks happening, just to but all for to make someone feel special. And I think the people that are part of that, it's a pretty darn good feeling. It seems like a pretty contagious type of thing where, you know, in, in the videos I was watching of what you guys have done, like the level of thinking that goes into engineering the environment to help a lot of people have that type of emotional response naturally gets contagious amongst the whole crowd. Totally, totally. And and it's to your point about how has how have these earlier experiences influenced what we do now. I mean, when I think of even producing the news or working at the camp and working with E2K, like we're producing basically an event and an experience within, you know, a very short time frame with kids being a part of that. And it's, I mean, it's, I, I always look back and, and think about, man, about the times that I thought, man, if only I could be living my dream now. And what I didn't realize is that the experiences I was having were shaping what my ultimate dream was and making this opportunity better now. Yeah. You know, um, well, thinking about some of your other experience, you talked about, you know, at at T-Mobile when you were handling the Walmart account for T-Mobile and helping with that and, uh, how that led you to working for the creative agency Lunchbox in LA with their entertainment side, helping these big like music launches. T- talk mm-hmm. about like the kind of artists that you guys would be working with and, and what kind of things you did to build anticipation for a release. Yeah. For, for context, I, you know, after, uh, after working at E2K through a series of different opportunities and connections worked up at T-Mobile USA, their corporate headquarters for about five years and really kind of honed a lot of my marketing acumen. And, uh, from there worked for an agency called Lunchbox that handled a music platform called Walmart Soundcheck. And, um, and so anytime a big artist was releasing a new album, um, in Walmart, we would create some special exclusive content around that release. And so, um, you know, we, we would oftentimes leverage the, the artist's social media channels and our social media channels that we managed to let people know, like we were recording this, showing the behind the scenes of the actual content being created. And then we'd release it in a very exclusive way and make it, you know, even using the word exclusive makes anybody watching that content feel, feel special. So like, what are, what are some of the artists you ended up working with? Oh yeah, sorry. Um, so some of the artists that we shot that I can remember off the top of my head, Selena Gomez, she's a pretty big deal still these days. And that was a couple years ago. She's bigger now, obviously. Um, uh, Philip Phillips, that was a cool one. We shot a, a, an exclusive acoustic concert with him on a snowy night in Ar- Bentonville, Arkansas. Uh, who else can I remember? Carly Rae Jepsen. I don't know if you recall her. Call me maybe. Artist. <laughs> so we shot uh her um who is the country we oh, we did bon jovi i actually wasn't nice. that one but we did like basically shot his a sh- exclusive show before he did his his show okay so but in a scenario like that um you guys had your own production people that are going right you we were talking yep. about this how yep. did you decide okay what is going to you know Besides the launch itself, like how do you decide what behind the scenes or what type of things to include or not include to generate that anticipation? Yeah, I, I mean, we it's kind of trial and error and using a lot of kind of 
our own appetite for what we like to watch behind the scenes. Like I, I know that I find it really fascinating just kind of watching people do a sound check and like kind of the miscues and just kind of how the artists interacts with their band as they're practicing. So, so we would, we would kind of use our own experiences and, and that would be a, a big indicator of what we would actually kind of shoot and release. And in, in general, it seemed to resonate with people just like it resonated with us. Um, and then of course, if, you know, if, if one interaction kind of got more love than something else we've done previously, it was kind of AB testing and we would, you know, start focusing more on that. So like we found that, you, you know, it, we don't need a whole band like Phil Phillips, just, you can go on YouTube and watch him perform, you know, with a whole band, but it was really cool to watch him and his music, play, his music or writing partner play an acoustic set just by themselves with a cool background versus, you know, the whole setup. Like that's what made it unique. Yeah. You know, I love, uh, I don't know if you've seen this lately, the, um, off camera series mm-hmm. on YouTube where it's just black and white, you know, Jake Gyllenhaal and the host will just be in a room having like a, regular conversation, not a press yeah. conference conversation. And you feel yep. like, Oh, that's who the real guy is. Right. Right. Exactly. Yeah. And I think that it's hard to, I mean, it's hard to create that because a lot of these celebrities and actors or, or whatever it's, they go to these press junkets. It's the same old questions. It's, you know, uh, it's routine, but if you can kind of create an environment that creates vulnerability, that's what people like to see. Like they're like, that that's actually what like I, I I don't religiously listen to Howard Stern. However, when he's got celebrities or you know interesting people on, and and I'm aware of it, I find it the most refreshing interviews because he disarms them and and asks them a question. And like it's like the real person, the real answers. They they actually seem comfortable, and that's I think that's a powerful thing. You know, um, before the show here, you and I were geeking out a bit about camera stuff and. And uh, it seems like you really identify with with video as a medium for storytelling and creating emotion. Absolutely, yeah. I uh, and some of that comes from when I uh, when I was in working at that summer camp that I mentioned. I had a lot of fr- ample time. I did a lot of surf. So the the camp operate. So the the actual summer camp was up in the Sierras in California, um, Sierra National Forest or Sierra Nevadas, excuse me. And uh, we near Yosemite, and then we operated during the year out of San Clemente, California, which is a cool little beach beach town in Southern California. So I did a lot of surfing, um, like twice a day. I think I'd go, then I'd work a little bit, and then the other hobby that I got into, and this wasn't that I I had obviously done some of this because I was in journalism and had to create different stories, but I got really into just video editing. Started with starting with iMovie and creating fun little. Um, you know, music videos to send to my friends and family just to make them laugh and smile. And I, I, I just enjoyed it. I remember before kind of YouTube was was starting, I would send out a thing called the Monday morning montage. And it started with like 30 pe- or 20 people. And then it turned out to be like 600 people. I'd literally compress a, uh, a QuickTime video and hope it didn't blow up their inbox and send it out every Monday. And it was just stupid videos, almost like Saturday Night Live type of skits. And so I've just... I, I loved the reaction and making people smile with that stuff. And so I, I've always been attracted to that medium as a way to tell stories and, and make people feel a certain way. I just think with, with video and especially once it's edited, you can just, you know, you can change people's lives and you can, you know, or just make them smile for that instant. <laughs> How great is San Clemente? I, I moved down there after about five years in Huntington beach and, uh, you know, T street and trestles and like, yep. 
it's uh, such a mecca, huh? Yeah, it's one of the last like you know towns in Southern California that actually feels like a you know an old an old surf town. So I, that's why I love it so much. It's a great place. <laughs> well, um, you think like we have such an emphasis when you when you look at innovation in the media, we have so much talking about the capabilities, the the mm-hmm. the tech specs. You know, whether you're talking. Uh, an app or you're talking about a new camera system, you know, you and I were talking about drones here today, Yep. right? There's so much of, of the speed and the tech and the this and that. Um, and yet so often it's not necessarily the best tech that wins, you know, the famous VHS over beta kind of thing. Right. Right. Um, what do you think it is about video that, I mean, when you're, when you're doing your entertainment stuff and you're getting sponsors like Axe and, uh, and T-Mobile and these type of people heavily involved, um, why is it that that an axe uh, body spray wants to be involved with your, you know, your video promotion around this kind of launch? Yeah, I mean, it, there it's. I feel like it's a, a multitude of things, like a combination of things that that makes content good and shareable um, and attractive to companies like an axe. So when we when I was working at the the agency creating these these, um, content pieces with these artists, one, the, the content did look great. It wasn't, you know, that we had tons of cameras, but you know, the way we did it in a simple way, in a simple forum, um, was pretty exciting Two, the content was original. So it was, this wasn't something that other people were doing. This was kind of behind the scenes, exclusive type of feel. And three, someone like Axe wanted to be involved with it because it was artists that resonated with the demographic that they're trying to reach. So, you know, we wouldn't, there were other different, so Axis is owned by Unilever who also has Dove and some other products. So, you know, if it was Bon Jovi, Axe wasn't necessarily who we'd partner them with. Axe would be more of a, you know, younger, edgier rock artist, right. Or a hip hop artist, whereas Dove may be more of a Bon Jovi type of artist. So, there's a lot of different components that come together for, for partnerships and what makes them, um, special. But, uh, you know, there, I, I think at the end of the day, like if your content is clean, like look, looks good, that is important, but how does it make people feel is probably even more important. Well, I feel like you, you talked about something so critical there, you know, we're, we're building this, our child rescue charities building this aftercare orphanage in Peru right now. And different members of our team have suggested, oh, we should we should hit up so and so as a sponsor. We should hit up so and so for a donation to help get it built, right? Mm-hmm. And I feel like um, you know a lot of us who are trying to get something done, it's so easy to see the world through our own lens. Right. And you talking about that, like being able to create an emotion in the demographic that they are looking for, how much right. power that is, and um, you know, I feel like we need to learn from that and. and Certainly a lot of other people, especially in the nonprofit space when, or, or the startup space where you're looking for, co, you know, collab project, or you're looking for a joint venture, or you're looking for a donor or sponsor for a nonprofit, this mm-hmm. idea of getting in their head of, of knowing who their demographic is and knowing right. that you can create an emotion in that demographic. That's yep. like, those are the kind of proposals that get a yes, it seems like. Yep. Ab- absolutely. I mean, there, it has you know, you can, you can, if you tug on the heartstrings of someone, that's one thing, but if you tug on the heartstrings and, 
and that person that's the decision maker understands that that's also going to tug on the heartstrings of the people that they want to buy their product. That makes a that makes it a yes. Well, um, thinking about um, some of the things that you've done that are a little bit uh, maybe less expected, where there's a bit of novelty. Uh, you know, I was looking at at the one video where the kids their appreciation project was for the police officer, mm-hmm. and it made me think. You know, our our child rescue backyard broadcast program that the youth prevention campaign. Our kids went and gave a a uh, they gave an award. Maddie Palmer ran it uh, for the police chief uh, in her in her area, and and it was nice, and the news covered it. But you guys like took it to a whole nother level. And just like the tagline for the video is like a little bit of clickbait of the like, I can't remember what it said. Something about police officer running, chasing oh, teenagers, yeah. whatever. Right. And then you get there and it's and it's uh, you get a good feeling instead of a bad feeling. Yeah, we were pretty we were pretty proud of uh, of ourselves for that headline. But that's where, you know, the old the old uh, working in journalism comes into play. But the, the headline was watch wild police chase on high school campus. And then it's warning footage may give you the feel good. So it's kind of, you know, people, and and I like to play off of what people tend to click on and kind of throw them off. Like, you know, when you see something like watch wild police chase in your Facebook newsfeed, I'm a sucker. I'm always going to look at it because I'm curious how it goes down. Is there a crash or natural drama? Yeah. Some sort of drama. Like, and that's, that's what, that's what the media feeds off of. So I'm like, all right, I'll feed off of that too, but let's, let's put a little twist in there and, um, you know, make people smile, not people, not make people scared of, of living in this world, you know, cause there's a lot of good stuff happening. So that's, that's definitely that. Yeah. I'm glad you noticed that. It makes me feel good. Cause we were, <laughs> we were, we were proud of that headline. We sit here for like hours sometimes thinking, what's a cool, how can we, how can we get people excited about this? But headlines do make a big difference. Absolutely. Well, but there again, that's something to learn from. You think about how much time, you know, content marketing has, has taken over so well, and now it's getting funded by corporate America and there's just mm-hmm. way more blogs and crappy YouTube videos than we could ever get through. And, um, there's n- so often a lack of forethought, you know, people confuse activity with productivity, right? right. And, um, you, you think about what an incredible leverage point a, a tagline that gets clicks is you could spend hours and hours with the most expensive camera equipment with great storytellers. But if you can't get somebody to click it to begin with and find out you've done all that, it is not that helpful. You know, people talk about how long it takes to write a blog post and spending the equal amount of time writing the title, mm-hmm. which sounds absurd until you realize like the value coefficient <laughs> of you know, what an incredible bottleneck that is of, you know, I think the inner engineer in me sometimes wants to feel like, well, if it's good enough, if it's good enough, people will find out. Yep. Absolutely. That's a theory that doesn't really play out in real life. Like you have, like you need a magnet. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you can have the best content and that, that was the, I'll be honest, that was a challenge for us and the frustration when we first started doing this dude, be nice project stuff. We're like, we have a good head. We have everything that we thought we needed, but we weren't, you know, people weren't, attracted to it. It wasn't until we, we started releasing our content in a different medium going from, cause we thought, Oh, you release it on YouTube. I hope, I hope people watch it. Right. But it goes into an oblivion of billions of other videos. Right. And so we decided we've got the, the place where we have the, the built in audience is Facebook. We, I think at the time we had about, you know, 15,000 followers and we're like, let's just, let's give it to them and let them spread it. And sure enough, the very first time we did that, that video, 
you know, has generated almost 800,000 views, which is insane when you're not spending a lot of money against it to tell people that's like organic. And that's, that's a hard thing to do these days. And so we kind of changed our, change the way that we, we release these and, and even promote them. And we're like, let's just lean into where we have people. Cause I thought my initial thought was I'm going to put it on YouTube and we're going to have millions of people watch it, but it's not that easy. Like it cracks me up a lot of, a lot of companies, you know, they hire people and say, can you create a viral video for us? <laughs> right. And so something oh, got one on the you, shelf. Did yeah, you want that in red yeah, or blue? <laughs> you, you can't, you can't create a viral video. Like there's nothing you can even do. I mean, there's things you can do to, to give it a better shot, but viral videos are viral, you know, on their own for the most part. And, and so you can't just create a viral video viral. It goes viral because a lot of different factors happen. Algorithms that YouTube and Facebook, they play into that. There's all sorts of things and we can do our best to like to, to push it out there and use the built in audience we have, but there's no guarantee that like, I, I still can't tell you why some have, you know, a hundred thousand views and others have 800,000. Like I, I, I don't, I, I can't understand it. Yeah. Okay. I want to ask you more about that, but first we're going to take a quick break and hear about our sponsor and then come right back. Today's episode is brought to you by Intel, and on the show we love featuring success stories, so it's easy to want Intel as a sponsor since their innovations have grown them to the point of having over 100,000 staff and brought in $55 million of revenue last year. But what we're talking about today is not their products, it's about something they want all of us to do for ourselves, and that's taking steps to make our own and our clients' information safer online. It's a continuation of something they started in 2012 when Intel created World Password Day, and they've been really successful with it. The first year, they graded over a million passwords. That means they tested them and told you how long it would take before they could be cracked and encouraged people to make better passwords. They managed to get other big organizations like Dell and Microsoft to join the movement too. What I think is hilarious is that Betty White did some public service announcements for PasswordDay.org this year that are about multi-factor authentication, which doesn't sound really funny, but the videos really are. My favorite for sure is the one where she's wearing green. It's the fashion maven, man maven one. You should really check it out. Uh, you can see all the videos at PasswordDay.org, and uh, we appreciate Intel for supporting the show. Now back to the interview. You know, on that front, I love the Jonah Berger book, Contagious, the Wharton professor that studied like, hey, the more of these six principles you can put in, the higher your probability of right. getting something to spread is. Um, but yeah, it is certainly a lack of education that it's, <laughs> it's only a probability, right? Yeah. Um, but you want to stack things in your deck and, and um, yeah, you know, give it your best shot, but you never know. There's no guarantee of something go, going viral. That's for sure. Well, and, and talking about aesthetics and making something attractive, you know, I'm looking at your shirts online right now and I'm like, I really like the stacked logo baseball tee with the red, with the red arms or yeah, just simple. I yep. like the, the mad positive shirt. Right. And thinking about your design choices and, and kind of the surf skate vibe and the, um, like kind of inventing cool, like, do you have any guideposts or any, any internal ways that you guys decide, nope, that one doesn't make the cut for us? Yeah. I mean, the, so there's a couple things we're doing now that to, to make sure we make, cause we've made plenty of mistakes where we've released things that you know, we sell like not, we, we just can't sell it. You know, we can't give it away in some respects and other things for whatever reason, people love it. And so, you know, we're, we're honing that based on, on the data, um, the sales data of the past, but, um, you know, just, just as kind of a, how this process works, the, 
I I am the CEO of an, an apparel company, but I'm definitely not a, your your fashion person per se. I'm more of a marketer, brand builder, content creator. So I, I knew that very quickly. So the first person that I brought along is a, a a girl named Veronica Tolentino, who is the fashion like guru. She eats, sleeps, breathes fashion. That's all she talks about. All she looks at, and so. She is responsible for working with our designer as well as free, some other freelance designers that we work with to help guide them based on different trends and her vision. And then we get before any release. So we'll have a release coming up here at the end of April, early May. When it's, and that means we'll have probably four to six new, new products um, or pieces. And she works closely with them to kind of cultivate kind of this general direction and then lets them go. And then we sit together as an organization with a group of like four or five of us and kind of say, yes, no, that feels right. And then we use a network of ambassadors, which is what we um, – we have about 50 em- – youth ambassadors across the country to kind of get a gut check from them. And we ask, we ask, just ask people in our demographic. We don't hire a firm and spend hundreds of thousands of dollars to do consumer research. We go do it ourselves by talking to, to, you know, from, from our younger cousins or like people in college that we know, you know, we, we get a sense of what they're feeling and what they aren't. And that's, that's kind of how we make our, our decisions. You know, it's, it's educated, it's somewhat gut and, um, we we go with it and then just learn from our mistakes, which we've made plenty of. That's for sure. Well, you know, I uh, one of my friends who hopefully we'll have on the show. He's uh, used to be the head of the Burton Snowboard brand, Analog mm-hmm. Clothing. Yep. Head of design over there. He's he's uh he's at Stance now, actually in San Clemente. And we've had a lot of conversations about this <laughs> of the idea of inventing cool and picking what's you know like trying to invent what is going to like predicting what will be cool six months from now. And, you know, there's a, there's a lot of people that know about scanning a website like hype beast, but there's so many others that are like a little bit underground that, that aren't in the mainstream that these people are constantly obsessing. And, (sighs) and, you know, he talks a little bit about the anxiety of when you've got to get it produced in another country and it's got to get shipped and you're, you know, you're making stuff that's not going to come out for 18 months. Yep. Um, that that uh yeah it's hard and scary and yeah <laughs> it's uh because you know it's an, especially when you're in this business and you're buying you're buying inventory your cash flow is going towards producing these goods you 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 don't have a lot of wiggle room especially in the startup space to get it wrong and so um yeah that's it's scary well let's talk about something that a lot of uh, a lot of folks who um, are either building a business but haven't left their full-time job or, or plan to build a business at some point, that moment of deciding to pull the trigger on, okay, I'm done with the check that comes in every two weeks and, and now I'm really going to do this full-time. What was that moment like for you or what, you know, what, did you done, had done to, what had you done to prepare so that that would be easier to handle? Or Yeah, so, so for me, it, it was really a long time coming. Um, and I knew that, so I was able to financially prepare myself, knowing that you know a lot of people in the startup world, when when you go full go at this thing, oftentimes there isn't income coming in for you for you know whether it be a month or years. And so, so fortunately for me, you know it was less stressful to to kiss my full time high paying job goodbye because I'd planned over the course of of a year and previously in my career. Um, financially, meaning, you know, I've had, I had significant savings and, and, uh, my wife had a job and we had, you know, insurance through, through her 
career. And so, so it, over the course of about a year, I kind of had an idea in my mind that, okay, if dude, be, and dude, be nice, obviously was growing and there were different, you know, ops, there were different hurdles that we kind of overcame to kind of say, okay, this really can be what we think we think it can be. And so, so over the course of a year, it's kind of planning and, and thinking and, and seeing some of the growth and, but I also knew that at some point I was going to have to, if, if, if this is really going to be as successful as we want it to be, I'm going to have to spend my, give it my all, my every moment, every, every hour, every second and go for it. So there, to answer your question, wasn't like a specific moment where I was just like, I'm done working. I'm going to do this. It was a, a really, for me, a planning process over the course of a year, putting, putting more money aside, limiting our expenses. So we would have some some cushion to, to pursue this, um, while not making an income for, you know, an extended period of time. So, so that it, that being said, it wasn't as scary as just like, Hey, I'm quitting my job and starting this. So I kind of prepared myself, but still it, it, it has been scary. And I'm in by, and by no measure, am I making the amount of money I was making previously at this point? But obviously I have a longer term vision and, and hope for this thing to, to build something that matters and that um, will ultimately give my family security. Yeah. Well, um, you know, there's such a, we were talking about this before. There's such a, a drama to the, the entrepreneur that risked it all and put it all on the credit cards. And, you know, there's these stories of the guy who pulled it off. Right. Yeah. Um, but if you have a family, like, uh, if you have been through a couple of crash and burns, right? Mm-hmm. Like taking swinging for the Homer isn't like in real life. It isn't always like it looks like on the movies, like right. showing up with a little bit of Warren Buffett reliability isn't necessarily such a terrible thing, huh? Right. Right. Yeah. And to your, to your point, you know, when I, let me tell you the circumstances where when I'm, I quit my job, basically I quit my job with, I'm married and we had a baby on the way and my wife was planning to, you know, stay home for at least a year to, to be with our daughter. And so that, that was definitely, that was a scary part, but I, I could never have done actually quit and left responsibly had I not been planning for many years, even before I knew that I would be leaving my job someday to, to pursue, um, a career in, in building my own business as an entrepreneur. So, so yeah, there's, I mean, every, I don't, there's no like formula for this. For me, it's just, this was my circumstance and this is how I planned. You know, some people, either way, I'm, I've gone all in. I put a lot of my own money into this thing, but you know, it, it how you leave your job or how you pursue, um, your own company, you know, isn't necessarily, there isn't a, a magic formula for it. Yeah. Um, cause there's going to be a gut check no matter what. Yeah. I mean, eat, no matter how you cut it, it's, it's, it's scary. You know, I just made it probably less scary just because I had to, because I had a family. Yeah. <laughs> I feel like now that we're on number 11, my wife is finally like, <laughs> she's finally having less anxiety each time we do this. <laughs> that's, that's amazing. Uh, yeah. That's- <laughs> <laughs> but uh, the roller coaster can, uh, the the highs are fun to talk about, but the lows are certainly a lot lower than than uh, maybe we like to think about. Oh, absolutely. absolutely. Um, well, listen, thinking about the hybrid of 
doing something that can feed a family, but happens to make the world better. Why are you so passionate about that? I think I'm passionate for a couple of reasons. One is I, I have been pretty fortunate just with the family. You know, I grew up kind of middle class. My, both my parents were educators. Um, but I, you know, I, I can't, I don't look back at my, at my life and say, wow, like I needed more or wish I had more. Like I, I definitely had opportunities. And I think, I think one of the greatest things that I can do to kind of give back and, and, and live a purposeful life is to create those same opportunities that I had for, for other, other people. So I'm sorry. I don't know if my, my phone just rang. I'm not sure if you heard that or not, but, uh, so, so I just, I'm, and, and I think working, going to being in, in positions where I, um, being in positions where I was able to see other young people that didn't have the same opportunities I had growing up that my parents put my, me in through volunteering or whatnot has really given me a passion to like, how do we, how do we even the playing field and give people the, the, the same opportunities and then, and then, you know, let the, the best people, um, succeed in those different areas, but at least we've all started from the same place. So that's kind of why I'm so passionate about, I think, uh, I think about this. And also from a selfish perspective, I just don't think that for me, I could, I could be completely happy and satisfied. And this is, you know, something that a lot of people can do. And I wish I could be more like that, but I don't think I could ever be satisfied just kind of in a, a nine to five regular job where I'm creating something that, that isn't necessarily, um, super meaningful in the grand scheme of life and how people live. And so that's, um, I guess those are the two reasons that I'm so passionate about this. Yeah. Well, um, you think about the youth market, it's, it's such a desired market because of the lifetime value of a customer potential. Right. And, and yet so elusive for so many people, um, you know, where something can be so cool and then months later, it's passe. Right. Um, what advice do you have for people that are going after this, the young, hip, the cool market? Um, when you think about the mistakes that you had to make and the the lessons you learned over time. Yeah, I mean, I, I, and maybe that maybe that will be us. You know, maybe this will be a, a fad, and and I'm confident that it won't be. And the reason I'm confident it won't be is is we've created something with meaning and that, that truly evokes an emotional reaction. And that's very different than just your kind of fleeting brand. I hope, um, you know, we've created, we've created meaning and, 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 and our brand has been a conduit for truly having an impact in a positive way on people's lives across the country. And I hope that that is what it continues to do. And when you, when, when you imp- impact people's lives in a positive fashion, like, I don't know that if there's a better way to create brand loyalty. You know, a lot of people talk about, well, you know, our, we have a loyalty program that, you know, our, our customers get 5% off that are lawyer or whatever. Like, I, I don't think there's anything that supersedes giving your customers, making life better for your customers in, in a way that's not as tangible as, you know, uh, a discount on your apparel or something like that. So I think that's, 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 what's going to make us successful. The, and long, give us a, the long-term a, attachment. A, a lo- yeah. A longer, have a longer term attachment. Um, but we're still young. So, so let's, let's reconnect in a couple of years and, and see if, if that's true. But, but I hope that, that that's the case. Yeah. There is such a, 
there is such a um, almost desperation sometimes to stay on top that the idea of going for the short-term wins like the sale or the promotion versus, you know, the work of building a longer-term attachment um, maybe doesn't always, you know, because it may not always show the results as quick, making the world better, right? Yep. Um, but when you think about the stability, the longevity of that, that's an emotion that endures, huh? Yep, absolutely. And even while it's not our target demographic, I look at some of the people just kind of as a proof point, some of the people that we've done these dude be nice projects for from a, from a, a lunch lady to a custodian, like this was already now almost two years ago that we did it for these people. And those are the people, those are the first people to share, like engage with any content we share on our, on our different social media channels because they, they were impacted. And I promise you those people will be, you know, lifelong fans, just like I'm a lifelong fan of them because of the, that like physical connection that, that an emotional connection that we've, we've made. And, um, you know, we're building this brand kind of one interaction at a time is kind of how I like to put it. Meaning my team, myself, we're out on the road, constantly talking to young people, talking to teachers, talking to, to retailers like we're building it we're not while the content's amazing that just gives us something to talk about when when we're actually interacting with people and that's you know more powerful than anything that we've we could do in the social space or advertising space it's interactions with people you know one other thing i think to highlight um obviously you know people who want to get involved or or they want their teenager to get involved whether that's a, a niece or nephew or a kid or whatever um Obviously, coming to the dudebenice.com website to get that kind of information is where they're going to do that. But uh, for me, I think one other thing that you've done that the uh, rest of us can learn from is this idea of, of customizing your own Dude Be Nice apparel. Like the yeah. chance for them to have some ownership of like this shirt was made just for our high school. Um, again, that seems like a shirt somebody's not going to throw away. Yeah, absolutely. And, and I mean, from a business perspective, it's awesome because it's um, made to order versus sitting on inventory. You're not tying up your cash flow. Uh, but, you know, for us, we wanted to we wanted this brand to come to life in, in customizable ways on campuses, schools, throughout organizations across the country. And it's been um, it kind of ha- this is one of those areas of the business that I never, never could I, I never saw this as part of our when if you're putting together your business plan you know when we first started this i never said you know custom custom apparel is going to be a pillar of our business but it's turning out to be 70% of our business you're kidding. But, but once we once someone kind of a school was like hey can you customize this for us so this could be like our school t-shirt and i'm like huh there yeah like we we can and and figured out kind of a process to automate that a little bit and that's been um a huge win, but it's one of those things that we very well could have said, no, we can't do that. You have to buy it from the website, but we adjusted based on the opportunity. And, you know, it's turned out to be one of the, the, the core things we focus on as an organization. And we want schools, organizations across the country to incorporate these vibes, um, wherever they are in their communities. And we've created the resources to, to do that. You know, it, it's fascinating how simple it sounds right. to listen to your customers Right. Um, I, I, the consulting firm I was with for the last three years uh, before starting Ideation Collective, you know, one of the things that I feel like kind of similar to what you guys did that worked out well was when um, they decided to let some of the, the training programs get customized 
um, and put the company's name and a photo and logo of that company right on the cover and then put like powered by yep. our consulting firm, right? Yep. And yep. instead of putting the consulting firm logo huge, you know, and it's all about us, mm-hmm. this idea of making it about them, it just made it so much easier for them to want it. And, yeah. uh, and there's something about like, I don't know what people call mm-hmm. it. I call it me marketing, mm-hmm. but like we naturally have responsibility for ourselves and, and it obviously strays into self-centeredness sometimes, but we all have the natural responsibility in life to take care of ourselves. And so this idea of something that's for us has like an inherent appeal. Yeah, absolutely. I think that, and, and for us, you know, we're like, how cool, how cool if you see, you know, Antonio Brown, the wide receiver of the, the Pittsburgh Steelers wearing a dude be nice hat in, in the locker room, which he does frequently. And now your kid watching that at home and you're like, Oh, I have a custom shirt. Like they made me a custom shirt, that same company <laughs> like that. That's pretty cool. And so that's, that's kind of the beauty of what we're doing. And, and we're really leaning into, you know, the custom space to, to, uh, to build this company. That's great. Well, listen, we always like to ask guests um, for book recommendations. Are you, are you much of a book guy? Are there any books you'd recommend to innovators or, or leaders or entrepreneurs out there? Um, yeah, absolutely. There's, you know, I think some, some classics. I think one of, the, one of the books I read in college that I, is still kind of my go-to when I think about marketing, it's, um, it's called Influence. I think it's, yeah, Influence, Science Practice of Influence, essentially. It's by Robert Cialdini. Um, just kind of how you, you know, it's, it was kind of my, it was, it was my first kind of eye opening experience into how do you, what makes other people tick and how do you, how do your words and actions in a business setting, you know, influence that. And so that, that's one of my, one of my favorite books, um, that I keep on my desk that I reference frequently. Um, what's the other classic I just reread How to Win Friends and Influence People. That's uh, a <laughs> classic. Um, so I, I love that book. I try to re- reread that book every year. Yeah, yeah. I I've read it twice now, and I you know I'm like okay, I can do a lot of these things better for sure. Um, but I, but yeah, I just like his his logic and, and concrete examples. Um, and then any Malcolm Gladwell book has been. That, you know, I, I love those books. I don't read, I, I can only, I don't read a lot of, um, fiction. I have to read nonfiction just cause I don't know. I have a hard time reading for enjoyment. If I'm going to read, I want to learn. Um, so, so I definitely have quite a few books that are my go-to kind of in this marketing business space. But I think, you know, Malcolm Gladwell books influenced by Robert Cialdini and how to win friends and influence people. Those are kind of my, my, uh, my go-tos. That's great. We'll put links to those on your page on ideation collective. Um, you know what I find fascinating about influence, um, you know, being that he's a Arizona state university professor, I believe the kind of the rigorous way that he approached it, you know, I'm, I'm kind of a book nerd and, uh, I, I get all these new business books and so many of them are like, here's an idea that seems relatively logical and here's an anecdotal story to back it up. And then let's get on to the next one. Mm-hmm. And what I love about influence is like the, the more scientific approach, like where they, they had, okay, here's I, here's an idea on how to influence, you know, how, what a waitress can do to influence a bigger tip or what a hotel can do to get people to 
um, you know, be nicer to the environment and not make their towels all get washed every day. You know, these right. and right. they tried things that they could be wrong. Like they weren't right. only looking for proof that they were right. They tried this and this worked and they tried that and that didn't work. Right. And they're willing to be honest about that. Uh, anyways, it lets me have like greater faith in his conclusions. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. It just, it's like an honest assessment of things that work that don't work. And that's creates trust for sure. Um, well, another question we like to ask everybody is at child rescue is we're trying to get more people involved in, in helping rescue children from child trafficking and, mm-hmm. and preventing, uh, you know, the exploitation of kids. What advice would you have, or what would you do if you were us to, to promote that cause and, and get more people involved and help protect more kids? That's a good, that's a good question. I you have a couple of friends involved with similar type of organizations and, you know, I, <laughs> It, you just don't think it's you're, it, I think we just don't think that it's an issue, but it's becoming more apparent that that sex trafficking, particularly child trafficking is a major issue, even in the U.S. Um, but, I, you know, I think I think the 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 greatest way to get to create awareness and to get people involved in that is to create captive audiences where people that have ex, that have experienced that and transitioned and, and gone through that share like i think it's easy for you or i to be like this is a problem this is why but the greatest thing are those testimonials and that is what that is so important and so i think that you know for 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 what I do and what I've seen is, you know, when I go talk to people and kind of give my testimony about this company and where we've been and I'm there in person, that makes a huge impact. So I think, I think creating a platform, a tour where people, where you guys are, are talking about this with captive audiences and it's not necessarily you, but it's someone from your team that's been through this and had this experience. That's one of the greatest things. And, and I think that there are so many different platforms to do this that I can help you with, such as, you know, there's so many student council type of events across the country where kids from every school and every state come together and, you know, there are workshops and different presentations. And to to really be a part of that kind of stuff to create the awareness with young people is pretty important, especially those young leaders, because they're the ones that set the tone oftentimes for the schools. That's awesome. Yeah, totally going to take you up on that. Um, Another question, I appreciate that advice. We definitely need to have offline conversation about it. Um, another question we always like to ask is, um, any stories of someone who set a good example for you, maybe early in your career of how to treat others and, and, you know, in like what way you want to be more like them? Yeah. Um, I mean, there's, there's a couple of people that, you know, I, I look up to in that space, but, but particularly kind of one of my mentors was, um, a guy named, he actually was my boss when I worked at a summer camp and we, we call him Skeeter Skeet, but, uh, classic summer camp. You don't call people by their real names kind of thing. (laughs) But, uh, yeah. and, And I think what, what I admired about him is that I was here. I was when I first started the camp, like an 18, 19 year old kid, he was probably in his early thirties at the time. And, um, and he made me feel like my opinion really mattered. And he, you know, the things that I, I thought I was good at, but wasn't sure he, he was great at promoting those. For example, you know, getting up on stage and, and kind of leading and performing in some capacity, you know, that was, 
that was something I always wanted to do, but he kind of found those opportunities to put me in those positions. And that was pretty special. So I, um, you know, I really give him a lot of credit for, for making me feel like my opinion mattered. And I think that when you let people, people's opinions, when you let people share their, their opinions and then give them feedback on those opinions and even take their advice and via those opinions like that, that's a pretty powerful thing as a leader to do. Yeah. It's interesting. You know, I feel like our world, we, we promote so much of this idea of there's the thinkers and the doers, right? You know, the, like, if we'd wanted you to have a brain, we would have issued you one when we hired you, you know, when we put right. you through boot camp, Right. And yet, um, there's so much more available when we're interested in what everyone can bring to the table. Right. Um, I, uh, I got to go to Japan last year with, a. Shingo Institute that does all this continuous improvement programs like uh, lean manufacturing, lean and medical, all this kind of stuff, right? And operational excellence. And it was like such a shock to see in person what we talk a good game about here in the States so much about empowering our people and and caring the, about the suggestions from the frontline people. And like over there at these manufacturing plants, whether it was Honda or Toyota or their suppliers that we were touring and like where they're actually doing it instead of just talking about it. Mm -hmm. Uh, it's fascinating how much more they got done. These, these one guys we were interviewing, they, um, they lost 70% of their, uh, business, like the orders for their product during the 2008, 2009 meltdown. And they had a big company meeting saying, well, do we want to let people go here because we've lost 70% of our revenue or does everybody want to come up with some creative ideas of how nobody has to lose a job? Hmm. And I can't believe this, but five, you know, five years later, nobody had lost a job yet. Hmm. And just the collective sacrifice and the like open-minded suggestions and the CEO taking a pay cut and just like walking the walk was incredible. It made me think like how often I've seen or I've done the like, Oh, hey, this tree in the orchard is producing the most amount of fruit. Let's only listen to this tree. Right? right. Rather than like, hey, those other trees, you know, somebody else might be less experienced, but it doesn't mean they don't produce any fruit, you know? Right. Right. Uh, they're not a mindless drone. And right. uh, anyways, uh, I can see why someone like that would be someone worth emulating. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And it's important. And sometimes, you know, I catch myself wanting to kind of work in a silo and focus on a problem on my own on my own. And it's amazing. We just sit down, you know, in a, even a very casual environment and, and kind of open up the, the challenge to discussion, how a people own it and we all can go forward together once we come to a resolution, but B the, the amount of feedback and ideas that come from that are you know incredible. And sometimes, you know, it's an ego thing, especially for CEOs and entrepreneurs to, you know, this is my thing. We're built, I'm building this. This is my thing. And they're this, they want to be, self-made or whatever. But I, I laugh so, so much when I think of people that talk about how they're self-made. I mean, it's just a very egotistical thing to say from my perspective, because I know for damn sure that I, any success that I've had or that we will have with this company is a result of a lot of people sacrifice and believing and customers. And I mean, there's no such thing as self-made in, in this, in this office. That's for sure. Um, yeah, right. Well, uh, we're going to put some videos and links to stuff on your page so people can see these inspirational stories. But maybe a good place to close would be um, just talking about 
one of these experiences that that kind of stands out to you as as one that maybe affected you more than the others? Yeah, I mean, this isn't necessarily going to do this justice because I'm not sure if it's going to be released by this time or not. So, I, I mean, we've had when we go find these people that are that are amazing humans that maybe aren't you know these aren't people in the cover of your magazines, the checkout line, or have millions of followers on social media. These are like your everyday hardworking people that truly believe no matter what they're doing, um, what kind of role they have, they're making an impact. Um, so we've, we've done, you know, about 16 of these, but only about 13 have been published, but there's one coming out that, that maybe will be released by the time this uh, interview drops, but if not, keep an eye out for it. But we went to Reading, Pennsylvania, which is basically as far as I know, like one of the highest murder capital or murder has one of the highest murder rates per capita in the country. And, uh, we went to a, a high school where it's a mostly African-American demographic and, um, you know, which, which oftentimes the media gets gets portrayed as you know can be portrayed as a negative thing. But we went to this school and um, these kids wanted to throw a party and a, a, a celebration for a, a man in his seventies who happens to be white who also with special needs. And he comes to the school every day at one o'clock and he's the pseudo security guard. They give him a walkie talkie and his job basically is to open doors for kids and give them high fives. He comes to every sporting event, every type of um, event that the school puts on, he's there and he's just almost like the, the school mascot, just a heart of gold. Does you know, he doesn't see, he doesn't see people for black or white. He just sees people as people, you know? And, uh, we threw this amazing party. His family came, um, he thought he was judging a dunk contest cause he loves basketball, but, uh, but he actually was there to be a part of this big celebration. And, uh, I don't, I don't get too emotional during these cause I'm kind of got my game face on, but, but I'll never forget like the joy and that, that, that moment brought him. Like he may not be, you know, the, the smartest man because of his disabilities, but he understood at that moment that he was loved by kids that, that were, you know, were kids that a lot of times you wouldn't think are the ones that would want to do something like this for him, especially in a pretty rough community, but they did. And he got it, his family got it. And it was a pretty powerful moment and probably one of the greatest, he's been had some health complications lately. So hopefully that's one of the, the, the greatest memories of, of his life. That's a great story. Yeah. And it, his name's Bobby Redding High School. Hopefully that video, if it's not out yet, it, uh, it'll be coming out soon and it, it's pretty powerful. Well, whenever it comes out, we'll put it in our feed too. So perfect. Well, Hey, appreciate you making time for us today. Appreciate how you're, uh, not just talking about making the world better, but putting action behind it. And, uh, thanks for coming on. Yeah. I appreciate you having me, Jess. Uh, I've, I've enjoyed it. Thanks for listening to today's episode. Before you go, my friends know about my total obsession with Mexican food, especially a shredder beef chimichanga or seared steak nachos. But this Cinco de Mayo, when you're enjoying some amazing tacos, remember to check out the new funny videos that will be launching on PasswordDay.org. Also, we hope you'll take the time to learn about the aftercare orphanage Child Rescue is helping build in Cusco, Peru at iCollective.co slash Child Rescue. Now's the time to find your color, your paint, and everything to get started during red, white, and blue savings at the Home Depot. Transforming your room is easier than ever. With the best deals online and in-store, you can confidently select your color and the tools for your next paint project. Get a colorful new experience and the right paint for the right price. Save $10 on one gallon and $40 off three and five gallons for a limited time only at the Home Depot. More saving, more doing. 
Limit 25 gallons per household. See store for details.